This episode of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. Welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief of the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast, number 178. When a breach happens to a company that's smaller, oftentimes they don't have the resources to be able to come back from that. Everyone recognizes that the alphanumeric password is security problem number one for modern organizations, but moving beyond the username and password may be a very different challenge depending on how big your company is and what kind of business you're in. In our second segment, Rachel Stockton of LogMeIn and LastPass joins us to talk about the findings of a recent survey on how small and mid-sized businesses in different industries are wrestling with password and authentication challenges. But first, it's hard to see through the miasma of the coronavirus pandemic, what with school and business closings, deserted public squares, and empty roads scrambling the very functioning of societies worldwide. But response to COVID-19 isn't the only issue before lawmakers in Washington, D.C. these days, and privacy advocates and civil libertarians are raising alarms that one piece of legislation up for consideration could reverse decades-old privacy and free speech protections, forcing companies like Facebook and Google to create government backdoors into customer data. The so-called EARNIT Act would penalize companies that the Justice Department considers to be thwarting investigations into child sexual abuse imagery, for example, by using end-to-end encryption to protect their customers' data. The law would remove Section 230 protections that shield such tech firms from legal responsibility for the content posted on their platforms. To talk more about the EARNIT Act and what it might mean for consumers and the technology industry, we invited Andrea Little-Limbago of the firm Virtu into the studio. Andrea is the chief social scientist at Virtu, where she focuses on the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and policy. I started off by asking her to tell us a bit about Virtu and also to talk about the EARNIT Act. Andrea Little-Limbago, chief social scientist at Virtu. And Andrea, just since we've got you here and our listeners may not know, uh, just tell us a little bit about Virtu. Sure. We are a data protection and privacy company. And so we've started several years ago doing encryption plugins for Gmail, Microsoft, and so forth to help ensure uh, your emails are protected. And since then, obviously, the data revolution has kicked off. And so we do more protection for a variety, not just email, but streaming data, files, all sorts of things. We have you in the studio to talk about some news that kind of been bubbling for a while. There was a bill brought forth uh, in Congress, in the Senate, I believe, called uh, the EARNIT Act. And this is ostensibly a bill designed to give law enforcement more tools to fight online child exploitation. But within the technology community, it's basically seen as a um, full frontal assault on privacy, in particular uh, encryption. Could you talk just a little bit about um, what the EARNIT Act does and also a little bit about the name of the act? It's got an, kind of an unusual at name, but um, there's a reason for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 
you know, it's one of those things, you know, of course there's always acronyms. And so, you know, they did yeah. a really great job uh, on, on this one. It's the Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act. So it is a mouthful to say the least, but I think it also gets at, you know, an inherent component of trying to appeal to the tech lash that's going on by highlighting the rampant neglect component. So, you know, ostensibly, it's to create a commission to provide a string of best practices to remove child sexual exploitation and abuse material. So that's great. No one wants any of that material online. That's a full bipartisan support. Pull anyone. No one wants that material online. It's horrible. And so that, that there's no debate about that. The, the broader issue, though, it's leveraging fears about what tech is doing right now and building upon the, the backlash amongst the public over tech overreach, such, with, such as what we saw with uh, Cambridge Analytica and just the, the series of data sharing scandals that have gone on since then. It's leveraging the growing distrust of the big tech companies, coupled with the, the, the notion of you know, just all these horrible abuses that are legitimately going on online. And using that, though, as a means to create a commission with 19 people uh, headed by the Attorney General Barr, um, heads of DHS, FTC, as well as several other experts and non-experts, actually, to create a series of best practices to eliminate these kinds of images and material online, which again sounds great. You know, we want to get rid of this material, but the way that it is drawn up provides a, a, an opening to ensure that encryption is not a best practice. And in fact, that encryption is a, is a means that's hindering investigations into it. You know, they, they don't want to have, you know, corporations following anything that could hinder an investigation. Corporations can decide what the reasonable appropriate means are uh, for compliance. And so it basically makes it to the point where if tech platforms aren't doing that, they'll lose Section 230 uh, immunity. And so... And that gets into, well, what's Section 230, right? And that's why, you know, this is one of those things that, you know, it's such a circuitous way to get at encryption. And so um, just quickly for what Section 230 is, you know, it's part of the Communications Decency Act. And, you know, what that did was basically ensure immunity for any of these platforms for what, what is posted on their platforms is, you know, the, the fastest way to sum it up. This is a really key idea that that I think most people don't totally appreciate, but that back in the you know early days of the internet, there was a um, you know federal law written or amended that basically said you can't be held uh, liable for things that people uh, say or do on your network. So uh, the example would be you know somebody can defame you in Twitter, and and you can um, you can sue the person who defamed you, but you can't sue Twitter for posting the defamatory message. And so that, in many ways, has, has enabled these tech giants to really to innovate and to grow their platforms to much bigger than I think they probably ever even imagined because of that immunity. And so losing some level of that immunity, which is what many foresee is ha- would happen if the Earned Act passes, would basically make it financially impossible for them to still function with that. And so part of it is that it's a concern that these best practices will and they, you know force uh, tech companies to either keep their Section 230 immunity through providing those back doors or give up that immunity. Uh, and then they're going to, you know, won't be able to stay on top of whatever they imagine would be the end of stream of governments requiring them to adhere and to and respond accordingly. So the earn it uh, sort of saying you need to earn this immunity by basically doing what we tell you to do in terms of making uh, any secure communications uh, wiretappable, I guess, is yeah. the, uh, is the an- an analogy to that. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that is pulling it all together. Uh, you know, 
they're earning their ability to maintain that immunity. And you know, and and part of it is you know they can imagine, you know, the senators and you know DOJ and so forth have really been pushing for is for the tech giants to figure out some way to scan the encrypted information for the that kind of abusive material. And to date, you know, there there aren't any best practices for scanning. They're you know, still in the R and D stage, and so and many of these companies right now are pursuing a lot of R and D to figure out how you could scan for those materials through end of an encryption. It currently does not exist a way to do that, but they are researching it. And you can imagine that what would happen is if this does pass, all the R&D to actually find a way that maintains our security and privacy of end encryption and can still scan it, any R&D to try and solve that tough problem very well could disappear because there aren't any incentives to do it anymore. Right. And I know there are emerging areas like I think it's homomorphic encryption and, and so on that could allow some type of analysis of data without violating the integrity of the encrypted data. And all this is coming at a time where we're already seeing you know, ongoing attacks on data. I mean, we've seen the, the cyber attacks and the data theft and so forth. Pretty consistent stream of that for you know, quite some time, almost to the point where you know, we have alert you know, headline fatigue on these kind of things. But encryption remains one of the most foundational technologies to securing data. And so you know, it's a trillion dollar industry at, the, at this point to try and secure and protect our data because it's such a tough challenge. And we, by going this route, you'd eliminate one of the only foundational ways we know, that's, it's not a silver bullet, it doesn't provide you know, 100% no way to get into it, but it is one of the most foundational means to protect data. And so getting rid of that really is a, is a big frontal assault on our privacy as individuals, but also on, on security as well for, for data protections. It's really very, very worrisome. And it's also very worrisome because it's done in such a way that you really do have to be a bit of an expert in, in into weeds in this area to understand why it even matters. And so for the general public, of course, they're going to be in, you know, in favor of a bill that doesn't want child exploitation online, right? Because that is everyone's natural response. And that, you know, that is a, a natural and understandable natural response. It's sort of that the umbrella for what they're really trying to get at. And so, you know, I, I think if we did a better job in explaining to the broader public why an encryption is increasingly so important for privacy, for security, and while at the same time, there are numerous ways to still remove this material. I think that's where, again, we, we struggle a bit because it, you know, it doesn't have to be an either or, right? There, there are numerous ways to innovate both in technology to remove this material, but also on, on the legal framework as far as, as, far as legal tradecraft. The, the law enforcement has, you know, remains and continues to be disrupting major child exploitation rings, terrorist networks, and so forth online, absent breaking and, and encryption. So it's not an either or. You still very much can get rid of this material and break apart these groups while maintaining the security and privacy. It just requires a little extra work. And that's one of the point that some of the news coverage about this has made, which is that the DOJ already has extremely powerful tools in federal law covering pretty much every aspect of uh, the production, distribution, or consumption of child exploitation, video images, what have you. If you're involved in that nefarious activity, you're going to be facing considerable jail time, no matter where you are in the uh, in the supply chain, as it were. And this doesn't really change anything about that, except saying the government shall have unfettered access to your online communications in the very, very remote chance that you happen to be involved in this nefarious activity. So there, there are two other areas I think that also I think get overshadowed on this. You know, there's a big framing of this all. You know, the, the rampant neglect component of the EARNA Act basically implies that tech companies aren't cooperating so far. <laughs> and, and that's the way the DOJ 
currently has been really framing it. And so if you think about the Pensacola case where that really was trying to focus way more on device encryption, trying to get access to the Apple iPhone, the argument there was that, well, you know, Apple's not cooperating with us. This is why we we can't have end-to-end encryption. But the reality is, you know, Apple turned over gigabytes of data to law enforcement. And so there's a vast amount of of data that all these different, different tech companies are actually providing. I think last year alone... There were, you know, they provided this kind of content 45 million times by, by one analysis that was recently done. So there really is a ton of information that is flowing into the DOJ law enforcement from these tech companies to help with this. I mean, there already actually is a carve out within Section 230 requiring companies to assist in providing this kind of material when they find it. And so I think that gets overlooked already. There already is a legal requirement for them to turn over this material. And they have been doing so as they find it. And of course, they can do a better job. Everyone can always do a better job. And, you know, again, this is one of those areas where you know, the, the R&D, um, other kinds of prioritization can help ensure that they continue to innovate in this area for identifying and scanning for this kind of material and turning it over. But as they're turning over, you know, was it 45 million times last year? That's a lot of data for the for law enforcement to go through as well, right? And so you can imagine you know, the resources required on, on that end. And so I think that for me, like, that's where I would focus on is, is leveraging what data is already out there and really making sure that you're using all of that because that's a ton of data that I doubt is you know, fully getting analyzed and explored through all this process. And so there is a lot of cooperation that's already going on. And so I think that gets lost. Yeah. A couple of things that are kind of troubling about the way the uh, law is written at this point, and again, obviously, if it were to ever pass, it would likely be changed. But so there's a um, there's a commission of basically political appointees who would uh, weigh these issues, and there's a certain makeup of the committee that it's got computer scientists on it and technology industry people on it. But no representation within this committee uh, of uh, civil liberties, privacy advocates. And then as it's written, of course, they can make recommendations to the attorney general, but ultimately it falls to the attorney general alone to make decisions about the implementation of this particular act and um, and what technology companies are required to do to, to comply with it. The latest draft that came out was revised a little bit from the earlier one that was leaked a few weeks ago. And so this one does include two people with uh, current experience in issues related to constitutional law, consumer protection, and privacy. And so that gets at the privacy component, sort of. <laughs> because it, Except it, they it, can be outvoted because you well, only need a 10-person majority, right? Well, there are two, so there are two issues, actually. So the one <laughs> is that they absolutely, yeah, they can get outvoted. So it's now only 14 are required for approval out of the 19. And so there are four of those positions. Two are for that you know, consumer protection, constitutional law, privacy, to our comp sci. And so the issue with both of those, the way it's currently described is it's an or. And so the two people that have the privacy background, they also could just be consumer protection. And so they could be, you know, child safety seat experts and not necessarily privacy. And so while that on the surface, again, it's, you know, that's where all this, you know, on the surface, it looks good. Well, they've got constitutional law, consumer protection or privacy. Great. It may very well be that it's someone who is focused more on consumer protection and not on privacy or constitutional law, which is where the privacy advocates would want someone to have that kind of expertise in order to be on this committee. And the same thing goes on the computer science one. It's it's computer science or software engineering or matters related to cryptography. And uh, so, again, it might be someone or one or two people who have cryptography expertise. 
It also very well may not at all. They, you know, they could be front-end engineers, perhaps, or something along those lines. Even the way those four positions are written is, is worrisome with loopholes. And then on top of that, even if they are all those four people, you know, they're, they're, they're privacy experts or crypto experts, uh, even if they, we have that, they still can be outvoted, like you said. So there, there are plenty of issues along the way with how this commission is set well, up. And, and even beyond that, even if 14 of those people were computer privacy and security experts, the AG can feel free to ignore their recommendation and do what he or she wants to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, we can quibble over the makeup of the committee, but at the end of the day, it's it's the AG under this law who can who can decide how exactly they want to interpret the law and and how far to push it. And, you know, obviously we're in an environment right now where um, the Department of Justice and the Attorney General there are lots of questions being raised about, you know, political preferences and the politicization of the Justice Department. So a bill like this... Um, Gosh. I mean, I guess one question is, as with wiretaps, you can break the encryption with the goal of finding child exploitation material, but there's nothing in the law that says that you need to throw out anything that you find unrelated to that, right? One quick clarification. So while the AG still will have the final say, it's, it's with more input from DHS and FTC this time around, which again still is ultimately the AG. because This they is the version that came out last yeah, week. Yeah, because yeah. they still won't push forth anything that, that the AG wouldn't agree with, but they're still... You know, they, they try to at least appease some areas of that. In the, in the latest draft, yeah. Yeah, with the latest draft. There's going to be a vast amount of other information that is captured along with it. And again, for so many of these cases, there's there's no guarantee that there's going to be anything, or there actually is any you know child exploitation material if they're doing broad sweeping scanning and surveillance, right? And so it's one of those things that by breaking the, the end-to-end encryption, you know, it, it's just it's unclear how much other information and how refined it would really be uh, with big concerns that it's going to be collecting a whole lot of other information from a lot of other people. And that's where you get in the very similar things where we're seeing already you know, with, with some of the tech companies and other areas for facial recognition, actually, it's a very similar discussion. You're throwing in a lot of information to law enforcement of both you know, mainly innocent people along with some that might be guilty. And so what, what's the protections for those that are innocent? That's right. That's right. Um, and yes, it's important to remember that this data um, would not be poured, you know, would not be picked over by uh, people sitting at desks in the Justice Department in D.C. It would be, you know, machine learning algorithms that are uh, both uh, harvesting it and analyzing it um, at, at computer speed, right? No, exactly. And, and today, at least as far as you know, they're not as accurate as we would like them to be for yeah. with that risk. So, I mean, I guess one thing to talk about is what we already know what the end state is here because we see in countries like uh, China and other countries that do not um, respect civil liberties how these types of broad surveillance powers are used and abused. But maybe if our listeners aren't aware, like what what happens, for example, in a country like uh, China uh, or Russia, where uh, again there are no civil liberties protections and these types of um, vast data harvesting and encryption-breaking laws already are on the books. So on the day that the, the ERNA Act uh, was formally introduced, and it was the same day that the Five Eyes put forth their joint statement for practices for the tech companies to adhere to. And they were, they were very unoffensive kind of best practices. And so it highlights you know, basically what tech companies were already doing. So of course, they're going to sign up to it. So Five Eyes, for those um, not in the weeds of the Department of Defense, um, it's New Zealand, Australia, uh, the UK, Canada, and the US. And so the way the Earned Act is part of the broader you know, Western Democratic coalition with a large collaboration and 
desire to require some of these back doors. And it's generally under the auspices of national security, breaking apart terrorist organizations, so forth, and now moving into more of the, the child exploitation rings. But why that matters and how that fits in, well, a lot of the, ter- the, the terminology that we heard from that and what we've heard from the Five Eyes if, back in 2018 when they did a broader joint statement specifically on encryption and backdoor access, a lot of that verbiage that's being used by those countries is very similar to what we hear coming from Russia and China as far as the need to access data for the good of the people for national security. And so in China and Russia, we're already seeing it play out as far as, you know, broader, you know, I mean, China, China is, the I think, the one example that many people are well aware of as far as the, the mass surveillance, the various kinds of um, limitations that are on the people. Russia, where we see, you know, probably a little bit more aware, but not quite as much. But Russia has, you know, time and again, tried to go after companies ranging from LinkedIn for not requiring access to data to trying to uh, ban Telegram, which ended up disrupting their economy because they end up blocking a bunch of internet sites unintentionally and brought down various you know, necessary public goods, such as you know, like taxi drivers, grocery shopping, and those kind of things. Like It really was very disruptive accidentally, which can also show you the unintended consequences of it. But what's happening, though, those are sort of the, the no-knowns. What I think what is less discussed is how that kind of surveillance and that kind of government access is spreading to other countries. And so you know, Thailand and Vietnam recently passed similar laws wanting government access to the data. And what is often done, though, especially in the authoritarian regimes, is that they leverage this backdoor into encryption or require government-approved encryption. And that's what uh, Russia does, for instance. It's coupled with other kinds of authoritarian tactics, such as, such as you know, internet shutdowns, censorship, some of the disinformation, the cyber attacks, the spyware, for instance, it's it's in combination. And so that's where you see, for me, encryption is part of that, author- like the breaking of encryption and, and the government mandated access to data all falls within that broader authoritarian playbook for just for complete information control. And that's why it's so worrisome. This is rarely just a standalone. It's a first step. And we don't know what happens next. And, you know, a really good example, you know, in Australia, this actually, this is a bill to explicitly focus on encryption and, you know, enabling government access to data. That was passed at the end of 2018, and already you know, there have been some cases of it, but there's not much transparency on how they're using it. And so, and that's where the big concern is: whether there is that government overreach, or maybe there's not. But again, it's one of those, there's no transparency, there's no insight. And I'd argue, in a, in a digital democracy, you need to have that kind of transparency. You need to have the the freedom for for privacy. I mean, so the United Nations has basically you know, has said that digital privacy is a component component of a human right in the modern era. That was a response to the mass surveillance that is going on through those variety of tactics, including the government mandated access to data. Yeah. And and as with all these laws, you know, um, you certainly could have governments that uh, were respectful of civil liberties and privacy, but governments change uh, with elections. Right. And you kind of have to write the laws with the with the least responsible, uh, most authoritarian, repressive a vindictive government in mind, not the privacy respecting and responsible government. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why, you know, even, even you, know, you can look, think about it, even if you had an executive government that you trusted enormously, there's just, there's no, there's nothing to con- ensure that there isn't some sort of malicious actor at some level within. And if you think about, like, the, even think about just in, insider threats, right? Like that alone uh, is a reason why you'd want to have an, an encryption to help protect against insider threats from getting access to data that they should not have access to, or from you know, ensuring that they don't you know, misuse and abuse that kind of access from the the, the broader you know, employee set. So there, there just it opens the door to so many different ways 
for misuse and abuse of data. And it weakens security writ large, which, you know, again, if we're trying to protect our data from the broad range of actors that are going on right now, going after our data, you know, this is basically the worst way to go about doing it. So you've been you've been out talking about this, um, and I think had a couple occasions to sort of interact with the or hear from the public on it. What have you heard? I mean, what what do you, what do you get a sense of the public's feeling about this right now? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think it's a good example of how you know within the security community we do a great job talking to each other uh, in extraordinary de- detail about these kind of topics. We're not doing a great job basically evangelizing why encryption and end encryption is so important to the broader public. And you know, just in, in conversations I've had outside of our community and in presenting outside, you know, it's, it's, it's not immediately clear why this is such an important thing. And so we just need to do a better job uh, of explaining it. On the one hand, there's there, the notion of the tech lash and the pushback on having big tech have access to all your data. That's understood. And you know, that I think you know, we see public opinion polling showing time and time again yeah, sure. that, there, you know, that the faith in those kind of companies to safeguard your data uh, is not there. And so, yeah. But, for good reason, <laughs> deservedly though, because <laughs> we see these data sharing scandals time and time again. And the good example, and what the one thing I think that works pretty well, you know, if you talk about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, you know that that that's one of those things that most people are you know, are pretty well aware of. And so, if you kind of frame it in that area, and you think about, well, the reason why Facebook is really taking the lead on trying to get end-to-end encryption across, or taking the lead and trying to spread it across all their platforms, I should say, um, and trying to you know, get on par with how Apple's been doing it in encryption. The reason why they're doing that is, is to show that the public can trust them again. You're seeing Facebook trying to take that step because protecting the data from them as well. So I think if we can frame it in those kind of real world, tangible means for how it would impact them on a daily basis. But I think it really, really is important to also highlight though, just the false framing that there still are ways to break up these, the horrible material and images that are online, that this, we don't have to give up our security and our privacy to go after them. There are, are other ways. And so I think that's also what we have to highlight is it's not an either or. And that's why, you know, honestly, and, and with the Earn It Act, you know, it's, it's a really good uh, marketing campaign that they're doing for it because it, it appeals to people's biggest fears. We need to sort of move beyond the FUD of, of all that and actually work on trying to explain not either or, Here's how it can protect you. And by the way, here's how it also can protect your information from some of the tech companies you don't trust so much. What, in your mind, would be the proper way to kind of square this triangle, as it were, or to um, resolve the tension that exists between you know, technology like um, strong encryption that protects the privacy of private communications that are not uh, illicit or illegal or threatening and you know, the dual use, that technology can also be used by bad actors to cover up bad deeds. How do you resolve that uh, kind of inherent tension? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, on the one hand, you know, technology is going to be dual use. And that's, uh, that is the reality of the world. And I think actually, we're a little late in remembering that, because I think that's what we were so far behind in figuring out that, you know, social media platforms could be used for evil as well. Um, not just for, you know, connecting the world and making, you know, and helping promote the Arab Spring and so in democracy. So I think sharing sharing pet little, photos and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, what can we do to optimize the illicit behavior and to hinder and try and uh, eliminate the bad actors and the more illicit behavior? And so I think a couple of ways that I think about doing is one: if you start looking at really prioritizing privacy, prioritizing you know, and encryption in addition to the broader you know, cross corporations, the broader uh, security 
fundamentals is, is a good way to start thinking about it. And then really, you know, expanding the resources and the capabilities of law enforcement to more of the digital era. And I know and they vary significantly, as, as you can imagine, you know, from city to city, state to state and so forth. But really focusing on the vast trove of data that is already out there for law enforcement to access and helping provide them the tools and the expertise to go about getting access to that data and leveraging it for their analytics and to break up these rings. So there, there is significant you know, capability disparities, as you can imagine, some are very under-resourced, some are over-resourced. And so perhaps, you know, within our community, you know, reaching out to law enforcement, doing some training, if, you know, if, if they're open to it, I think is one way to actually start, you know, building a better collaborative relationship and then expanding our, you know, the knowledge that we have in the community to law enforcement to help minimize the need to want to just break, you know, into a device, you know, because I mean, if you think about it, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a resource issue in that if that's the easiest way you think you may get at something, why not just do it? But perhaps if we provide some of the training and so forth and resources and, and continue providing the data that many of the companies do, I think that's a good way to get at it as well. And what I'd actually would love for the U.S. to do, you know, when we think about, you know, like the, the general data protection regulation from Europe, when you look at the fines that have come along with it, many of the fines, so the GDPR includes a component for uh, appropriate security safeguards and so forth. And so many of the fines that have come out over the last year point to companies that have neglected to safeguard their data, and they highlight a lack of encryption. While we see this anti-encryption push going on one end, we do see the GDPR um, and other governments are starting to, to see encryption as a means for data protection and privacy. Brazil is actually passing a, a similar law um, later this summer. But I'd love to see the U.S., instead of taking you know, the earn it approach, take an approach and be a leader in safeguarding data and privacy and security through a broader federal data regulation because we don't have one at all currently in the U.S. And what would be great would be for our community, the privacy communities, tech communities, along with the, the various constitutional law scholars to really work hard to pull something together to make the U.S. actually the leader in safeguarding data and privacy instead of, you know, basically falling on the bandwagon of what the authoritarian regimes are doing. I think if the U.S. went that direction, it would have a huge impact uh, on all of our privacy and security uh, and then have an impact across the globe as well. Well, and and again, the final argument obviously is if the encryption can be broken by law enforcement, it can be broken by others as well, whether they're cyber criminals or, or other nations. Yep, that's exactly right. There is no backdoor just for the good guys. And we can guarantee, again, given the sophistication of many of the nation states these days, that they will do their best to find that same backdoor. And then all the while, by the way, it actually will push a lot of the, the criminal groups off these platforms where we do, are getting a ton of data from the tech companies and onto more of the, the illicit market where we're already seeing you know, encrypted devices and encrypted messaging apps that are, you know, a part of the underground economy. And so even if we acquire the encryption backdoor for the, you know, above ground uh, companies, it doesn't mean, you know, encryption still exists. Like that, that will not go away. Can't put that genie back in the bottle, right? That's exactly right. Can't put it back. It's already a growing industry, but it'll be growing even more so. Groups will move off these platforms, will move, will lose even additional data, and they'll go underground and still have the end encryption. Andrea Lombago, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Andrea Little Lombago is the chief social scientist at the firm Virtu. You're listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by LastPass. Up next, COVID-19 isn't the only epidemic going on these days. In the business world, there's an ongoing epidemic of phishing attacks and ransomware outbreaks affecting companies of all sizes. 
That's particularly true, however, of small and mid-sized businesses, or SMBs. At the root of that epidemic often is weak user account security and an over-reliance on insecure alphanumeric passwords. Companies can increase their security greatly by limiting the number of passwords their employees manage and by using stronger technology to secure those passwords, such as password managers and multi-factor authentication. But adopting such tools is a tall task for many firms. A survey conducted by LogMeIn found that there were big differences in the readiness of SMBs to embrace stronger authentication and of the security challenges they face in doing so. But that's a tall task for many firms. A survey conducted by LogMeIn found that there were big differences in the readiness of small and mid-sized businesses to embrace stronger authentication, as well as the business challenges they needed to solve, depending on the industry that they were in. In this podcast, we're joined by Rachel Stockton, the Senior Director for Product Marketing at LogMeIn, to go over what LogMeIn and LastPass found out in their survey and how small and mid-sized businesses can get in front of identity and authentication challenges. I'm Rachel Stockton, and I head up product marketing for our Identity and Access Business Unit here at LogMeIn. And uh, Rachel, welcome back to the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. We're here today. We were both um, just out of the uh, RSA conference where we ran into each other happily um, and uh, had our had an occasion, as we do every year, to go out and kind of see what's going on in the information security industry. And once again, a lot of focus around problems with identity and authentication. I, I definitely saw that as a theme. I'm sure you did as well. So we thought we'd have you in to talk about it and also to talk at some interesting data and research that LogMeIn has on kind of how this impacts different industry verticals, right? You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that we, um, you know, we saw each other at RSA, and one of the things that we see in so many booths and so many sessions is there is a real focus on larger enterprises and larger businesses, and of course, those organizations are at high risk for data breach and all sorts of security concerns. Um, and there's a lot of information around that and a lot of focus on solutions for bigger businesses. When we were thinking about what we wanted to understand and, and bring back into our business and our product line, we really look at that sort of more small, medium business, look at it as you know employees 250 to 3,000. They are also very focused and at risk for security breaches. And when a breach happens to a company that's smaller, oftentimes they don't have the resources to be able to come back from that. And so what we wanted to understand were what were some of the identity priorities? What were some of the perspectives these companies had on this? And then also um, through both this research and interviews, just really trying to, to talk to these organizations, some of our customers, some prospects, some, some that don't fit into either one of those and understand what are some of their base challenges challenges that are preventing them. Because one of the biggest differences between the enterprise and the small, medium business actually isn't the threat that they're under because they're under similar threats. It's the resources they have to be able to respond. And those resources are, of course, budget numbers. um, So the tech that they can buy, but also the people. So the number of people they have that can staff certain things, um, the expertise that they can have around security or even around identity. 
identity. And so I think what we wanted to understand was how does this and how do those limitations impact what the SMBs are really seeing? We do look a little myopically at large and wealthy firms, whether those are financial services or healthcare, or even, you know, large government agencies in the cybersecurity space. I think that's been true for a long time. But obviously, most of the companies out there are, are not large businesses. They're small businesses, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to focus there. You went out and, and surveyed and surveyed these small and medium businesses. What did you, what were you asking them specifically in regard to, you know, their identity management and authentication, you know, kind of challenges? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. Um, first, we did qualitative interviews to try to really understand the language and the understanding um, of that identity management space for small, medium businesses. Um, and what we initially found out, which I, I wonder what you think about this, when we said something like, um, talk to us about your identity management stack, oftentimes for smaller organizations that less that sub 1,000, the answer would be, we don't have one. And I think that a lot has to do with the terms that we use. So your question's really interesting. But when we talked about how are you providing your employees or your contractors or, or, or even customers at times access to important systems, and then how are you protecting those systems, we would get very different answers. So I think that there's an education that's needed for those smaller businesses. And what we were really looking at here were various elements of how you can provide access. So looking at single sign-on as well as password management, and then looking at how you can protect access with MFA. And so looking at all different types of MFA, you know, your more traditional types of authentication, but then where does biometrics fit into your picture. And then we also did a little bit of research around sort of where do they see lifecycle management as part of this? We know that that can often be a very challenging part of a fast-growing organization. Often it's very manual. There's a lot of pressure on IT as well as the business to get that right. Um, so really wanted to see where, where those aspects came in and getting a sense of some biggest challenges, biggest opportunities, and where they thought they'd be investing in the future. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, um, finding, hiring, and holding on to the IT and information security professionals to do this work is a, is a huge challenge. So often what you're encountering is just a kind of knowledge and skills gap within these organizations, particularly the smaller they get, you know, where they might have one or two IT people who basically do everything, including security, right? Yeah. And then it's funny. I, and I, I wonder if your audience also feels this when, when, when they're asked, oh, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> when, when we generally sort of ask that question or opening up the conversations, um, Almost to the one, one of the top three things people say is, I put out fires. It's so interesting, Paul. It's at all levels. It's at, you know, the admin, it's at the admin, but it's also at the CISO and the CIO. It's about putting out fires. So how are you able to do that with a small group of people where there could be a skills gap and a knowledge gap and move protective strategies forward like identity? I think a couple of things that we really found out too are trying to understand were some of the motivators behind why people are looking at different kinds of identity solutions as well. And it really, you, you guys know, when you're looking at any kind of security solution, it's often this balance, right? The balance that we've talked about before between um, security, convenience, 
and then cost. And cost is not just how much you pay for it, how much you have to pay for it over time with your people, with your implementation, with forcing your employees to get on there. And so I think what we saw here was, you know, from an SMB perspective, there was a little bit of a difference based on company size, but really a lot more had to come down to from a vertical perspective, really understanding the motivations and some of the primary goals, some of the verticals were trying to achieve from an SMB perspective and how that affected their decisions. So tell us a little bit about the verticals that you looked at and some of the differences or distinctions you saw uh, in response to these questions about um, their identity management needs and challenges. So we looked at four verticals, financial services, IT, which is always very interesting coming from an IT shop too, media and retail. One thing that was most interesting to me was how much both understanding the types of employees that you have in those organizations and the type of data that you're protecting comes into play with determining what your priorities are. Um, So like, for example, with finance, we know that they have some of the most, number one, important assets that have to be protected from a business perspective and a consumer perspective. And they also have some of the highest compliance regulations. And company size, that matters less because if you're a small financial company, you still have to comply and you're still protecting these huge assets. So what we really saw is that the concept of reducing risk was one of the biggest things that was driving their identity strategy. Strategy. I think it was about 70% of those rated that as a priority and the average for other verticals was much smaller there. And I think this has a lot to do with right sensitivity of the data, but also all of those compliance requirements. And I do think there's this nomenclature, right? We can talk about reducing risk versus increasing security. And I wonder, and I'm curious what you think, when you start to drive compliance in there, I do think the story becomes much more about risk and the action of how you do that becomes making your organization more secure. It's interesting. I mean, I almost look at that as if you were to say, well, we're really focused on just reducing our risk, I would almost be like, well, good. I mean, that's that's the right answer. That's what you should say, because just to try and play whack-a-mole and stop individual threats or attacks is is a losing gambit, right? You're never going to do it. So yes, you should be focused on what your what the biggest risks to your business are. And so it almost strikes me as like, well, maybe financial services firms are just a little more sophisticated in the way that they look at this problem versus, let's say, a dentist office or something, which would be like, well, we just want to keep the, you know, the viruses out or we don't want to get ransomware, you know, and it's just like much more simplistic. So there's part of me that says that, but I, but I think you're right. I think the other part is just the impact influence of regulations, whether that's, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley or PCI or whatever, GDPR and CCPA and all of these things, right? Um, Trying to avoid uh, fines and reputation risk and downtime, right? I definitely agree with your concept of maturity too. Because I mean, let's look back years. I mean, we're right now with this conversation, we're really talking about securing your business. We're not talking about securing the consumer as much, but for decades now, I think I can I can say decades, that would be two, 20 years. I mean, financial services have been focused on securing that consumer in ways that the consumer doesn't even know about. So this element has been been part of their DNA much longer, I think, than many of the other verticals. And they've also seen, and this is for the smaller ones, you know, they've also seen about 35% um, of those organizations have admitted that hackers have gained access to their company. And so they've been through 
you know, they've been through the hellfire as well. Some of the other verticals you looked at, though, had had a very different perspective. And I know in particular, you know, the retail uh, vertical that you looked at had some really had a really interesting perspective on this. So when we get back to thinking about the data that you protect and the people. So when you think about retail, of course, you have people who are working in corporate and then you have retail like there's online as well. So so much is digital, but there are still stores (laughs) and you have a very transient population there who still need to have access to, you know, core HR systems, core business systems as well. And so when we look at retail, what we really see is that there are so many, a few things. One, there are so many different ways for people to be sort of accessing information and even working with that retail organization that it's hard for them to be able to put all of the data together from all of their channels. I think second really comes down to those employees we were talking about. And so when you think about the people who are hired, you know, to really be the feet on the street and and the greeters at the door and selling, they're also bringing in different kinds of technology themselves. Um, And so you do have this concept of shadow IT. You do have a concept of while more things are being pushed to mobile phones um, for authentication, again, there's a question about if these are transient workers, how open are they to do that? And then how much are you trusting what else is on, on their device? But it is definitely like shadow IT, what we found it um, from a retail organization, they definitely found it a higher risk than almost any of the other organizations we've seen. So 38% of them saw it as something that they had to really identify. And then the other really interesting thing, and I was surprised at this one, was how focused they were on number one, implementing multi-factor authentication, which I, I think makes sense when we think about what they're protecting and their workers, but then also using specifically biometrics with that. And that was way above other verticals. And so as I thought about that, um, I'm curious your perspective. It does seem like the most natural step now to move your MFA to biometrics, particularly for a millennial Gen Z kind of audience who's used to using this in every day. It just simplifies your onboarding for critical security requirements. When oftentimes uh, I would think biometrics is for more financial services, right? More mature. But this is a much easier way that people are used to of proving who they are. Well, one of the really interesting things, I think when we think of retail, I think, you know, we probably think, oh, well, you know, the, you know, you go to work in a retail outlet and it's a department store and, you know, you might work there for a year or two years or something. But but increasingly, these stores are hiring thousands of people for very short periods of time, you know, just around the holiday season, so you know, eight weeks, you know, they're, they're onboarded and then offboarded once the holiday season's over and they just don't work there anymore. You know, UPS, which is hiring tens of thousands of package delivery people, you know, in just really rapidly around the holidays and then they disgorge them, you know. And, you know, what a sort of strain that puts on legacy identity management systems where it's like, you know, each employee gets a profile and somebody's typing it into the, you know, into the system and, you know, they're getting a password and, you know, a, a badge and all these other things, you know, that just don't make sense in that context. But like you said, these smartphones are in some ways become a platform by which you can do that in a very seamless way. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. And they add risk. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's that's true. They add risk and they minimize risk at the same time. So, I mean, some of the sort of more sobering statistics from your survey, um, something like nine, I think 98 percent of the organizations you surveyed said that they had work to do on uh, employee security. Um, and, and a majority, 53, said they had a lot of work to do on uh, employee security. Um, what's what's behind that in your mind? And um, when they're talking about, you know, we've got work to do, what, what are they talking about? I think there are two things, right? There's one, which is ensuring they have the tools in place uh, to be able to provide secure, simple access, to be able to report on the on, on all the different things for auditors, to be able to get people onboarded. That's one thing. But I think the biggest challenge still is that human condition. Password management and password hygiene is a habit. How you work how you view security as an individual is a habit. And we are we are humans and it is hard to change us. And so I think a lot of that does count, that, that 98% comes down to how do we ensure our employees understand how critical security is, the processes that we're putting in place, we're trying to put in place that will keep us more secure, not to keep you out. And how do we also share ownership of keeping our organization secure. This is not just an IT job. This is literally the role of everybody who's employed here. And that can be really hard. I think there are tools out there that can help with that too. But I also think that that's really hard in an SMB because in larger organizations, you have people who are literally assigned to do great internal comms about security and IT, to create interactive games that drive people to want to achieve, not for the good of the company, but to get more points and can help push security into that employee. But if you're looking at a small IT organization, it's much more challenging. Um, And there, you know, I think that's where the IT leaders in these organizations have to look back at the vendors that they choose, whether it's their uh, SSO vendor, MFA vendor, or even the reseller that they potentially may buy from and see what kind of plug and play um, communications they have that can help with this as well. Because we all have different packages that will try to, that, that come with our solutions that try to drive that message home to the employee. Um, I also think it's so high because when we have IT people taking this in SMBs, solving that is not natural to them, right? It's not a tech problem. It's a it's a human problem. It's a communication problem. So I think here, it's actually an opportunity to partner with your human resources group. It's an important piece to think about how, when you onboard people, and I don't mean in your system, but that very first day and you bring them on and they're talking to their manager or they're getting the tour. This is the time to start setting the stage for how important security is. You know, sometimes people feel like technology is so sterile. You, you buy a tech solution, you put it in, it's going to solve it. But I think when we look at verticals and we look at how organizations, um, like who the target audience for things are, whether it's a highly functioning, highly technical corporate staff, a transient group of employees coming in for three months, or even a number of clients that you have to work with, that impacts your decision. And then going back to the point about how do you just fully get everybody involved in security, that goes beyond the tech. And so I think that this conversation highlights the needs of SMBs, highlights the needs of verticals, but also highlights that technology is so much more than bits and bytes. And to be successful in identity and security, you have to take a more holistic approach. 
Rachel Stockton of LastPass and LogMeIn, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us again on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you, Paul. Rachel Stockton is the Senior Director for Product Marketing at LogMeIn. You've been listening to the Security Ledger podcast. This episode of the podcast was sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com.